Hello and welcome back to Conversations with Essa, the podcast where we chat all about all things economics. This episode is the first episode of a new four-part series where we'll be providing you an insight into the career pathways available to an economics major and what it's like to work in these different industries. My name is Jack and I'm joined today by my co-host Les. Les, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. So, hey everyone, I'm Les and I'm a first-year student at Monash doing Bachelor of Commerce in IT. And I'm excited to say that this episode will cover the following questions. So what makes a good economics teacher? Will the future of economics education change? Has the impact of COVID highlighted the importance of economics education? In this episode of Conversations with Essa, we will start the new season by interviewing Wayne Gehling, who is a senior lecturer in economics at Monash University. Wayne has won multiple teaching awards and has contributed to many peer-reviewed journals in which his research expertise covers European economic history, resistance to authoritarian regimes, and education. All right, well, we may as well jump into it. Um, So we just wanted to take it right back to the start, Wayne, and ask you a little bit about what your student experience was like. student experience was uh, quite a long time ago. I hope I'm not to continue, so that's okay with the recording. Good, good, good. Uh, So my university experience started way back in 1990. Uh, I studied at La Trobe for five years. I did a uh, Bachelor of Economics. Um, 30 years ago, Bachelor of Economics degrees were actually quite popular. These days, they're, they're actually quite rare. So I did a Bachelor of Economics. Then I uh, studied uh, an honours year. <coughs> then I uh, basically moved across to Melbourne and uh, did a PhD in history because I've always had a great love of economics and history. So I'm basically uh, uh, sort of uh, dual talented in that respect. Basically, loved economics, loved history, and I love economic history. So, you had a lot of overlap between the the two subject fields then. Yeah, I did. I did. I always found history interesting as a kid. I grew up loving, uh, you know, war novels and war films and things like that. So, I always had a good passion for history, mainly sort of modern European stuff. And uh, at high school, I found I was quite good at economics as well. So, I studied economics because when I was in year twelve, I had a really good high school teacher, and I think. Uh, when you're 15, 16, 17, you're quite influenced by role models. I had a great teacher, therefore economics became a natural pathway to me. If I had a bad, if I had had a bad economics teacher at that time, I probably wouldn't have studied economics. So I studied economics mainly because I found it interesting and I thought, well, there's a career path here. But at the back of my mind, I also loved history as well. So I was sort of caught between the two. So in the end, I basically... Oh, there was no real trade-off involved. I did both. Oh, I guess the trade-off is I probably spent a bit longer, longer at university than I otherwise would have expected. But uh, it worked out well. PhD in history and I, and I a lecture in economics. That's, uh, I have the best of both worlds. Um, so did you see yourself being here today, um, you know, teaching economics? If I'm being brutally honest, no. Uh, when I finished uh, my honours year in economics, I crossed over to history because I'd always had that passion for history. And at that point, I, I didn't actually think I'd go into teaching or academia. Um, I, I had some teaching experience during my PhD, but at that point, I'd never seriously contemplated this this, this type of career. I was fortunate. I, I discovered I was a good teacher <clears throat> and uh, I was given an opportunity to teach a couple of summer school units and uh, 
the rest is history, I guess, pardon the pun. Uh, I, I discovered then that I could actually lecture, but I, I'd never seriously given it any consideration before then, um, which is interesting because I think most people, if, they're, if they become a good teacher or a great teacher, they, they always like to portray it as inevitable. There was nothing inevitable about my path. I stumbled across a series of opportunities and I took them. Yeah, I think it's funny because a lot of people in their university days are quite concerned about the the certainty of their career path and trying to lock in a job or something. And I think it's always interesting when you hear stories of people who end up in fields that they had no idea that they were going to end up in. And I, I think that's a, that, that's a good point, Jake. That uh, I think that it's comforting to have that certainty as you study. And it's nice to begin a science degree knowing that you want to become a scientist or a law degree know that you want to become a lawyer. Um, the reality is life doesn't work like that. Um, that sometimes in life opportunities arise in mysterious ways. The key thing is to take opportunities when they present themselves. Always keep options open. And one of the things about education is that I don't believe in a predestined fate when it comes to education. I think that if you study hard and you take your opportunities that you will find <clears throat> in life, different things present themselves at different times. So being open to different ideas is important and nothing is truly wasted in education. I mean, studying psychology or science or medicine or math, it's all part of the learning process in life. And I think that sometimes we become too obsessed with vocational opportunities. And obviously when times are tough with, you know, unemployment high and, you know, an economy in a recession, it is difficult to find the right job. So you don't always end up where you think you will. But if you work hard and take your chances, you give yourself the best possible opportunity of success. But uh, being open-minded about what you want to do is important. Um, when I was five, I wanted to be a fireman. Uh, I don't want to be a fireman now. I wanted to be a lawyer when I was in high school, by the way, too. But my, my, my marks weren't high enough to get me into a law degree. I'm glad they weren't high enough, actually, because I, I think I ended up with a better career. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. It's definitely funny how, you know, people put so much pressure on marks and then it can just turn out a complete different way. Uh, anyway, we might move on now to kind of what you're doing now. And so maybe if you could just give a quick breakdown on what your job actually entails and what it is you do day to day. Okay, so Monash uh, hired me in July 2018. So technically, I have an education focus, which means I have a slightly heavier teaching load than the typical tenured academic, but I do have tenure, but I have an education focus. So I typically have a 2-2 load, which in plain English means two courses per semester. So if courses can be thought of like pizza, when I came to Monash, I thought I'd have a large and a small each semester. I have two family. I teach the two largest courses. <laughs> Uh, micro at Clayton and micro at Caulfield each semester. So effectively 3,000 first year students come through my uh, courses uh, each year. So that takes up probably about 80% of my working week. In the very limited time I have available, obviously I like to research. Most of the research is in economics education, pop culture, experiments in classrooms, that type of stuff. But I'm pretty active in, in economic history as well. And that, that's, that's the, the true love outside the classroom. The economic history is me getting in touch with the child who loved reading war novels and watching World War II documentaries. So I still do a lot of that stuff involving, uh, you know, sort of, you know, German resistance, um, but, but from a legal or economics perspective. So I, I still keep in touch with my main passion in life, which is reading about history. 
I'm fortunate enough to be able to research it. But that's probably about 20% of my job, maximum. The rest is actually teaching, which is something I love. You know, if, if you, you need to love what you do in life. And the, the one piece of advice I'll give to all students coming through now is that um, when you think about a career, think about something you want to do for the rest of your life. It's a tough choice to make. I'm fortunate. I love what I do. And with that, what do you think the best part of your job is? The most rewarding part of my job is uh, seeing students develop an appreciation for economics and to leave the course thinking about life in different ways and building on that and becoming good students, good corporate citizens, and then successful in life. Writing references for students, I love doing that. Most, that that's not a sexy part of my job, writing references. But, but writing a reference and then someone getting into grad school and then contacting you 10 years later to say you changed my life is an incredibly rewarding experience. The other really rewarding experience is attending graduation ceremonies. Again, that's not high on most academics highlights reels, but I love it. And, and meeting families of students who've graduated, especially in the international, because they're, they're always so cute because for them it's their life. I mean, they've invested so much in their kids' uh, education and seeing the, the bliss, the, the joy on their faces during the graduation ceremony is a priceless moment. So they're probably the two highlights, references, seeing students get into grad school and graduation ceremonies. Yeah, I can imagine that must be pretty rewarding just watching like the journey of you know, students growing and seeing that your work has actually had an impact on their lives. Absolutely. I mean, and because I, I predominantly teach first year, first semester, I don't have a lot of contact with these students beyond that. Now, in my first semester at Monash, I taught an intermediate level course as well. In the four semesters subsequent, I've only taught first semester micro because micro is the first course you take. So most students take it in their first semester. So for the students that I teach in the first year, I don't have any direct contact in their second, third year. Whereas if I were teaching intermediate and advanced level, which I did when I was in America, I taught intermediate and advanced each semester. That was great because you would see the students a second time and then you could see their growth as students. Whereas now I'm really um, welcoming you to university, showing you the way and hopefully teaching you enough about economics and about life that holds you in good stead throughout your, 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 your academic journey. So yeah, I, I basically at the moment pretty much see people at the start, which is good. You need your most important role models at the start of university. Yeah. In your classes, um, most students who have attended them would have seen the, the videos you show of um, the huge classrooms you're teaching over in America. Do you want to talk a bit about what it was like teaching over there versus it is over here? Yeah, uh, I mean, I was, I was very fortunate. I mean, I, I spent six years teaching in America. I was at Penn State for four years and the University of Arizona for two years. It changed the way I think about teaching. It certainly made me a better teacher. There's a vibrant economics education community in America and being exposed to that and actually learning in a really tough competitive environment is important. Uh, I'd previously worked at La Trobe and I was a big fish in a small pond. When I went to Penn State, I was a small fish in a big pond. There were a lot of amazing teachers there. So I had to improve to be competitive. I taught classes of 750, like a lecture of 750, with 750 people in them. Um, it was a, an amazing experience. And uh, being exposed to the different ideas of teaching uh, was really important as well. So when I came back to Monash, I, I felt that I was a much, much better teacher as a result. The six years I spent in America were the most productive, enjoyable of my academic career, without any doubt. 
without any doubt. And I've got a lot of friends and collaborators still in America. I like, I like getting back there anytime I can. Uh, yeah, so, you know, at some point in the future, I might return. So in your career, are you saying you have access to a lot of international experience where you can learn from others and develop constantly? Yeah, and I think that's important in any line of work. I mean, when I was at La Trobe, I was like a, like a rock star lecturer, but it was a very small university on a global level. Going to Penn State and Arizona uh, and being exposed to more competitive teaching uh, uh, fields where you have 10, 15 people in any department who are fantastic forces you to improve. And it, but also these seminars and workshops and conferences that you get exposure to in America make you better because you get exposure to cutting edge ideas. So I was fortunate at that time to have that in my career and I've enjoyed my time back at Monash, but it's a lot different here in Australia. Um, the teaching here is more labor intensive. Uh, you don't have the same level of resource or admin support you do in America. One of the great things about the American system is that if we were in America, uh, you would be working for me in the semester after you finished. You would be undergraduate graders. You would come back to my class and you would take that as, as an elective and you would be a teaching assistant. And that's really cool because what happens is that the, the best students get exposure to your teaching ideas in subsequent semesters and they can help you do that as well. And they love it because they get that on their CV. So um, I would typically have 20 to 30 undergraduate TAs per semester when I was in, in the US. So it gives you more flexibility in terms of what you teach and how you teach. The stuff that you like to do in classroom, you've got people who can assist you with activities and grade them as well. And we don't have that in Australia for, for a variety of reasons. So it makes it a little bit harder. So when I came back to Australia, I had to re-adapt my teaching philosophy to fit the Australian culture. And that's fine. I mean, you know, in, in different societies, we do things different ways. But uh, the American system uh, really suits my style, I've got to say. But coming back to Australia has also been great as well. And I've enjoyed my time at Monash. But I've had to change the way I teach because there are more uh, constraints here in terms of resources. Yeah, wow. Um, Wayne, you've definitely got a quite a distinct style of teaching. Um, I know that when I had you, I was lucky to have you, lucky enough to have you in person before coronavirus. Um, do you want to speak a bit about what you think the qualities are that make a successful teacher, especially to those bigger classes that you mentioned? Basically, four key concepts. The first is to be organised. Um, if you're teaching large classes, core classes, first year, you have to be organised. Second is you've got to be enthusiastic. If you don't care about your job, why should the students care? Why should the students come to class if you don't care? If you go through the motions, what incentive is there for them to take it seriously? Third, you've got to have empathy. You've got to realise that these are students are human beings with frailties and, and needs, and um, they're, they're not they're not uh, to draw a sort of economic aphorism. They're not like Spock in Star Trek. These are students who are just learning their way in life. Uh, they don't necessarily understand the the uh, bigger picture. So you've got to have empathy with the problems that students have when they learn. One of the, one of the problems with teaching if you're a recent um, grad student and you've just, you know, gone onto the market and got your first job, a lot of grad students think that students should be taught the way they were taught at grad school. When you're dealing with first or second year students, you can't assume that level of knowledge or that level of interest, okay? You've got to stimulate the interest in students before they learn. So don't think that everyone learns like you. 
okay? The final thing is you've got to keep your course relevant. If you're involved in research, your research should inform your teaching. If you're teaching in COVID, then you should, COVID times, you should be using examples that relate to COVID. And so you've got to make the class interesting and interactive because students don't necessarily have an interest in what you're doing. And one of the, one of the things, especially um, at Monash Clayton, is that the students we get are probably, you know, in the best 5 10% in the state. Okay, the, the elite students typically go to Melbourne, Monash, okay? So the best students, like yourselves, um, you'll learn anyway. If I were a mediocre teacher, you'd still learn in my class, okay? Um, but at the end of that class, you'd be lost to economics. If I did a bad job, you'd never come back. You'd still get a good grade in my course because you're super smart, but you would never come back. The opportunity cost for good students is really high, okay? So we're competing with law. We're competing with... Uh, management, accounting, finance, all these other areas where you could major in, okay? So we've got to be great in order to stand out. So getting that right early is really, really important. So all of those things are important in teaching. Organisation, enthusiasm, empathy and relevance. Yeah, wow, that's a great insight. Um, so how have you found adjusting to COVID and do you think there will be any long-term impacts on, on the teaching of economics? Well, I mean, I think one of the things about COVID is that uh, obviously it caught a lot of us unprepared. Um, at the start of semester one, I had a resident course. In week two, I had a hybrid course. By week four, I had an online course. So we went through three different phases, okay? So the resident is what I'm used to. The rock star performance, that's, that's my bread and butter. That's what I've done for 15 years. I'd never taught online. I'd never really wanted to teach online, to be brutally honest. Um, but I guess sometimes in life, you get caught unprepared and you've got to adapt to your situation. So it's a little bit like being caught on a bridge. You've got to try to cross to one side, otherwise you end up in the river. So um, the biggest change with, 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 with COVID is online or remote learning is different to face-to-face. You can't assume that students are engaged. You can't assume that students are motivated. You've got to change the way you teach in terms of how you prepare the material. But you've also got to change how you communicate with students. In an online environment, signalling, having a visible presence, weekly uh, context emails are incredibly important. In a resident course, you'd never think about doing that. But when you're learning remote, the basic view here is that if you don't log on to my Moodle site, you're out of touch. That's the important thing with an online course. You can't take anything for granted. So you change the way you teach. Now, whether that be synchronised or asynchronised is up to the lecturer, but you've got to have a, a clear, visible presence in the course. Because if not, the students think, well, why am I paying all this money for? What's the point of me paying twenty or $30,000 a year when I could download Khan Academy videos? So the biggest impact on, on, on the market here, it will force us to become more responsive to students. So to draw an analogy with the competitive market in economics, there's more producers now competing for the customers. The students are rational in terms that they can basically play off one against the other. It's going to force us now to improve, to innovate. And that's good news for consumers down the track because they'll get better quality teaching. Yeah, for sure. I think it's going to be interesting as well to track how like student preferences change as a result of this once COVID is over and whether they'll prefer online more or whether there'll be a switch back to, you know, completely in person again? Yeah, I mean, in the short term, obviously, we're uh, at the mercy of, uh, you know, the, the actual virus and 
state federal government regulations. The university has a strong preference to open up and, and obviously get students back into the classroom. Um, I, I, one thing I've noticed this year is that I've added new strings to my bow. So I've become a better teacher because I've done things I otherwise wouldn't have done. So when we go back into the classroom, I'm going to keep a lot of those ideas. Things I don't, I mean, I use Kahoot for exam reviews last semester. I'm going to keep that. Um, I, I, at the moment, I'm running a lot of social events for the students. I'm going to keep that as well. Now, in a uh, resident classroom, the demand for social events and interaction is not as high as in a, a remote learning setting. But I'm going to keep them because I think that some students will still want to learn more online. Office hours, for example. Gone are those days of long lines back in the classroom. Because I, I think that, again, you have to adapt to the market. Now, the 18 to 20-year-olds, that's pretty much the market that I'm teaching, um, their preference for learning is changing. So we, as a supplier of higher education, have to adapt with that. So my view is, why not find out what the students want? And then, as long as it's reasonable, why not try to adapt to that? So if they have a preference for evening office hours, why not run evening office hours? If they have a preference for an online exam review, why not give that instead? Their marginal cost isn't really that high in, in terms of delivering a lot of these things anyway. So uh, I see it as a great challenge. Um, look, the, the best educators ne never go out of vogue, never go out of fashion. Um, you know, if you can adapt with the market, if you can adapt with the times, then you stay relevant. And that's the challenge facing the university, how to embrace technology, how to embrace the different learning environment, the different preferences for students, and keep delivering a uh, competitive product. Yeah, awesome. Um, just on that, you were talking about how there's been the, the need for social interaction now that we're all online. Uh, you told us about, before the podcast, your, the Study Buddy program, I believe it was called. Do you want to speak a bit to that, maybe? Yeah, okay, so week one I was speaking to my lead TA and we are talking about ideas of trying to motivate students and uh, a former colleague at Penn State runs a large class group, uh, it's like a blog or a forum, and someone tossed up that idea, why not have a social event with speed dating? And I, I'd never done it before, so I spoke to my lead TA and said, what do you think? She said, oh yeah, we can get this to work. So, okay. So at short notice, we put it together. We had 147 students show up to a speed dating event where they were given icebreaker questions. Uh, so they were put into breakout rooms and I think they ran three iterations of it. So they technically got involved with about three different groups. And then uh, we said to them, okay, listen, why don't you share contact details with, with uh, the other people in the groups and, uh, you know, maybe you'll form some study buddies out of this. And uh, in a follow-up questionnaire, what we did is we uh, tried to actually create groups for them as well. We said, listen, do you have a preference for this? And those that said yes or maybe, we put them in touch with other people. And we said, listen, this is your group here. We're not getting involved. This is your group. Uh, and the idea here is that we've given them two ways of forming study buddies. One is through the actual event itself and the people that they meet in the breakout rooms. And the second way is basically through randomised uh, groups that we created. And we'll track the progress through the semester and then we'll see how it works and then maybe tweak it for next semester. And we've got good feedback from students. Um, they miss the social connection of university. Um, when I was a student at university, the social life was the highlight. For an 18, 19 year old to my generation, that was the thing we looked most forward to actually meeting new friends. And it's such a shame that we can't do that at the moment. So I guess one of the beauties of technology is, uh, is that we can create a virtual social event. Um, for, imagine studying 50 years ago through a COVID 
with academic. You wouldn't be able to meet anyone. You wouldn't be able to study. University would be cancelled. So we still have the means of putting students in touch with, with each other. So what we're trying to do here is help them connect, help them form networks so that they actually enjoy the presence more at university because they pay a lot of money for this. And um, I, I believe that, um, you know, the university needs to ensure that the students get looked after here. You're more than students to me. I generally care about my students and want them to succeed in life. So, you know, this is a lot of extra work, but for me, the payoff is huge. Yeah, that's awesome. It's definitely something that I think we've all found is kind of adjusting to that uh, difference with not really having that connection. And yeah, I can imagine a program like that would be really beneficial just to have that other, another person to relate to or maybe, you know, just converse with about the, the material you're currently going over. And um, I think that just really would make the whole uni experience a lot easier. Uh, so move, yeah, go for it. Even last semester, when, um, which was technically resident, then it went online, I had probably 10 or 12 emails from students week two, week three, saying, I'm lonely, Wayne, I don't know anyone, I'm at home now, how do I make friends? And so this idea had been brewing for a little while, and I just thought that this semester, given that we were online from the start, it was probably easier to do this as well. Um, it's something that I'm going to keep going with in, in future, I've, I've just um, submitted a paper now on this topic uh, to, to a journal, and it's a COVID-19 response journal as well. So they're saying, okay, listen, for people who teach, what are some good ideas for the classroom? So this is, is something that we've submitted. So the idea here is basically to make this as like a blueprint or, or DIY manual. So other educators who like the idea of doing this have the means at their disposal. Sorry to inter inter interfere there, Joe. Yep. No, that's, um, that's quite interesting because I actually um, enrolled last semester and your class was um, one of those classes where I was looking forward to it, going to in-person. Um, but unfortunately, due to COVID, um, I couldn't do that. But I, I think it's really interesting, the study buddy program, as um, it would definitely help you know, people like me find other similar minds and so forth. I'm running a social event tomorrow, um, myself and my TA, and she's going to do the speed dating part of it. I'm doing the uh, pop culture trivia quiz. Uh, so we're gonna, do, we're gonna run that by Kahoot. And uh, so the idea here, and that there'll be a competition and a really dodgy trophy for someone to win as well. It's just little things like that that matter. And so the, the, the quiz will be popular because students like these pop culture quizzes anyway. And we're hoping through the speed dating that this is another opportunity and the other thing I'll do after the event tomorrow, I'll send the students a survey and I'll say, listen, we want to run a third event. Give me some ideas. What would you like to see? What type of event would you like to run? So we're opening this forum up to the students to say, listen, if you, if you think this is a good idea, why not actually help out here? And, and ultimately, you know, economics is about market forces. If there's demand, supply will follow. Okay, but there's got to be a market for it. So we'll give the students an opportunity to, to tell us what they want for a third event. If it's reasonable and uh, feasible, then we'll put it on. That's great. So um, also another project you've been working on. So the past few years, you've been working on Music for Econ. Um, would you like to explain this to our listeners? So Music for Econ is a project that I first started working on when I was at Penn State 2012. Uh, one of my uh, collaborators, uh, Dirk Matia, who actually brought me to uh, Penn State, uh, had been working on that for a few years. So the idea is that students basically synthesize music with economics. So they take a song and then create a virtual uh, 
video for that song that involves lyrics, graphics, and economic interpretations. These days, what students tend to do is take a video and then edit it. So rather than create their own video, these days they actually tend to edit an existing video, whereas five, 10 years ago, they would construct their own video through PowerPoint. And um, so I've been running that in my classes for pretty much the last eight, nine years. And it's been really, really successful. A lot of the music I played before class is stuff that my students from previous classes had actually created. So uh, we've published a paper on that, which has a, a do-it-yourself manual for anyone who wants to introduce the, uh, the, the project in their classroom. And we've recently created a website, uh, Music for Econ. So it's music and then four is in the number, uh, econ.com. And it's great. Uh, you know, it's had about 4,000 uh, views in the last month. And the, the idea here is to have a website so that uh, instructors and students can find clips about economics and music that helps them understand economics better. It's great to promote creativity in the classroom as well. But what we really want here is for instructors to have a resource that they can use in their classroom. Because ultimately, I see this as, as, as a public good. It's not exclusive, it's not rival, it's out there and that instructors and students can use it in order to improve the way we teach and hopefully inspire more people to study economics. Yeah, for sure. I definitely found that um, very relevant, you know, case studies and uh, especially for like music for econ, I find it's like a, an engaging way to, you know, bring in your students because it's music. It's something everyone likes. Music's a universal language. I mean, everyone loves music, irrespective of age, gender, nationality. Everyone loves music. Um, we won't agree on what type of music we all like, but we all like music. So why not find a meeting that connects people? So for me, it's such an obvious thing to do. So the, the whole important, the, the most important thing here is that you're playing music that relates to your students. So I leave my ego at the door. Okay, I don't listen to music that 95% of my students listen to. So it's not about me. No, it's not about me saying, well, this is the music I like, you should listen to it. It's like, what music do you like? So the idea here is that most of the music is going to be R&B, chart, pop, because that's what students listen to. What we started doing the last year or so is bringing foreign language music into the classroom. Uh, before my final uh, lecture um, last year, what I did is I played a BTS song. And so this was a resident class final lecture. So semester two, 2019, I played a BTS song at the right at the start of the last lecture. No one, no one was expecting it. And students all looked up and they were all watching it. And some students would have been thinking, wow, this is K-pop. Others would have been thinking, who the hell is this? And obviously it was in a different language, but it had subtitles at the bottom. The point here is that music connects people. So what I've started doing now is using foreign language music as well. And this is allowing me to tap into the Chinese market, the Indian market, international market in general. So that the new dimension of music for econ now is foreign language material. And that BTS song is actually part of their homework set this week when looking at externalities. So I'm using music now to leverage interest in the course. And it's having very, very good results. Yeah, I totally agree with you when you say it's an international language. Um, I know BTS is quite popular around the world. And you know, I think it's really interesting you're using that to um, teach in the classroom. Well, one, one uh, side product from that, or side project actually, is that uh, I've, I've formed a little team and we're actually going to write an 
an article on the economics of K-pop. Now, it's in, its, <laughs> it's in its infancy at the moment. Uh, I'd be struggling to get an abstract to you if you needed me to describe it in detail. But uh, the idea is that uh, we have five members. Each member chooses a different K-pop band. And, we, and uh, what we do is we write an article which focuses on lesson plans. So how would you use this song in your class? BTS is, is the group that I'm going to look at, actually. I don't know what song I'm going to do yet, but that's, that's the idea. So basically the article would effectively be a teaching manual for someone who wanted to use that in their classroom. And look, I mean, K-pop is a global phenomenon. I see this as a, as a commercial decision, to be honest, in some respects. Why not get first move advantage in a market which has exploded? recently you know k-pop is massive um so why not write an article about it yeah for sure um so just on that like you seem to be very ahead of uh recent trends and things and compared to other lectures i've had you seem to be a lot more up to date with popular culture how do you manage to stay at kind of the forefront of what's popular and innovating your teaching style i mean i think there's two things first you have to have an open mind. Um, now, being up to date with pop culture doesn't mean that you have to basically uh, act like a teenager. I don't listen to K-pop, for example. Now, as part of this project, I will need to, and that's fine, I'll do so, but I, I wouldn't listen to K-pop in my spare time. Um, so the first thing is you need an open mind. The second thing is you have to be able to access these ideas from somewhere. So why not crowdsource from your students? I, I've had projects before where I have pop culture paper and I would say to my students, okay, um, one page, I want you to basically give me an idea I could use in my class. And it can be a TV clip, film, music, commercial, whatever. Um, and it can be English language or foreign based. So when you run a project like that, you may have three or 400 entries. 10 or 15 might be elite. There's 10 or 15 ideas right there. So to answer your question in, in, succinctly, um, I crowdsource a lot of ideas. I ask my students, what are you listening to at the moment? And when they give me ideas, I get, I get, I get 20 or 30 emails per semester from students who just come up with a random, oh, wait, oh, this clip's good about game theory. That's a random show from France or something like that. Random stuff like that all the time. And it's cool. I love that. I've got a guy who sent me a, a clip about Mongolian throat singing. I uh, can't understand it, but it looks interesting. Um, this is the point here that once students feel engaged with the course and they know that you work in pop culture, they they want to give you ideas. So a lot of my ideas come from my students. And I'll do something similar at the end of this semester. I'll say, listen, guys, I've got nothing left to give except a few coffee vouchers here. Um, give me some ideas and you might win one. And I'll get ideas because for students, the marginal cost is very low. When you're in, in, excited about a course and your professor says, listen, um, could you give me an idea for the course? Students love that. And the best students love to contribute ideas. And they get credit down the track. You know, when I use these clips in my class, I'm very gracious about acknowledging where the ideas come from. So, yeah, I'm going to crowdsource most of these ideas, Jack. That's, that's my aim because I'm not getting younger. I'm not 18. I, I, I don't listen to a lot of this music. I don't watch a lot of films, but my students do, you know. So it's all there. Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. I think it's definitely uh, a great way to, you know, generate ideas that aren't your own is just to use the wealth of knowledge that you've got in the young people that you're teaching every day. The other thing is also because I publish a lot on pop culture, um, when I'm researching for papers, I'm coming across these ideas. A lot of my co-authors also, uh, you know, work uh, 
on music or on TV or film. So I'm constantly exposed to a lot of these ideas. I read a lot of papers. Um, so yeah, being in that, in that economics education community that focuses on pop culture means that I'm at the forefront. So I'm exposed to these ideas too. It's pretty cool. I'm, I'm actually writing a book review now, looking at um, how Hollywood films are used to teach economics. How cool is that? In my spare time, I'm actually sitting down reading about how we can use films about war to teach economics. And that's great. It, it, that taps back in with my love of history, you know? So life's good, life's great. Yeah, I guess that's the great thing about economics is you can kind of mesh it together with almost anything really. Like I think I remember from when you taught me is one of the things I took out of it was that there's economics in everyday life and that, you know, almost anything can be applied to an economic concept. Totally correct. That I mean, that, that's one of the things you want to expose students to because when they come into the course at the start, I normally think economics is about money or about, um, you know, stock markets or things like that. No, it's not. Um, economics is a way of approaching life, of thinking of life in terms of trade-offs and choice and costs and marginal analysis, all that type of stuff. So it's a toolkit to understand human behaviour. Uh, and then once you apply that toolkit to everyday situations, you actually realise that economic forces and factors influence and shape how we behave. Once students make that connection, they get it. But it's, it's getting to that point, which, which is critical um, in, in, in a course. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, um, economics is everywhere. I mean, the economics of everyday life. These are catechisms which students take with them for the rest of their life, you know. It's a liberating feeling seeing economic forces at play in day-to-day in -day -day life. Yeah, so I agree with Jack. Like, I would have never thought of, you know, ever thinking about using, uh, using movies to teach economics. But um, I think this comes down to the big question. Is there any advice you could give to students who are um, interested in a career similar to yours? Okay, so I mean, the, I guess the most important thing is to obviously I mean, study hard and get good grades. That is still important, getting good grades. Keeping options open is important as well. But also don't lock yourself in too early in life. As I said, um, I, I went from wanting to be a fireman to wanting to be a lawyer to wanting to be an historian to teaching economics. I've been through different phases in my life. Um, have a, whatever you do in life, do with passion, okay? And that somewhere along the way, you work out what you're going to do in life. But 18, 19 is actually too young, in, in my mind, to be, to be deciding definitively what you want to do. You might lock yourself in, I'll be an accountant because I'm doing accounting. After five or 10 years, you realise maybe the profession isn't that great after all. So if, if you want to be a teacher, if you want to teach economics, um, passion and enthusiasm go a long way. So you've got to really, really want to do it, okay? Um, and then the other thing in, in, in life is you've got to take opportunities when they arise. Things don't move in linear fashions. Life is not a simple model that we try, try to create. Life is way more complex than any model that we derive. So keep options open in life. Take chances. Don't be afraid to take risks as well. Um, because, you know, as we're seeing in 2020, what we took for granted last year no longer applies. And what we've learned through 2020 will shape the foreseeable future as well. So I guess what I'm saying is um, always keep options open in life. But teaching um, ultimately is the, the most important factor in, in teaching career is actually passion. 
enthusiasm, wanting to actually inspire people to learn, getting into teaching for the right reasons. Okay, if you teach at the elite level, yes, you can make a lot of money. Okay, most teachers though don't make a lot of money. So whatever you do in life, do with passion. So choose the career for the right reasons. But if you're good at communicating, if you like helping people learn, if you value seeing the positive externalities from education, it's a fantastic career, but it's a lot of work. Awesome. Yeah, that's some really great insights there. Not just for people who are looking to pursue a similar career, but just in general for life. Um, so we're almost coming to the end of the podcast now, but just before we wrap it up, uh, is there anywhere that our listeners can go to find out more of uh, what you're up to and uh, any other sources that you kind of post what you're up to? Oh, good question. Um, well, I mean, uh, a lot of students keep in touch. I mean, the good thing about having a surname Geerling, there aren't too many Geerlings around. It's a Dutch name. So if you, if you look up Wayne Geerling on Facebook or Instagram or, or LinkedIn, you'll find me. Email, obviously, people can email. Uh, the Music for Econ website is, as I said, it's just been launched. So um, you can certainly uh, suggest any ideas if you want to contribute towards that. Um, I don't have any personal blogs or websites, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm pretty active in social media, although I don't have Twitter. Uh, so I would say, you know, e email, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram, you can probably reach me. Um, and look, I, I actually enjoy hearing from ex-students. It's, as I said, it's, 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 a, it's a great part of my job when a student, it's just give me one more minute. Um, it's, students will often contact me when they want a reference to go to grad school or a job, and I get that. But it's even more satisfying when a student contacts me five years later and says, um, Wayne, I just started my career. You know, you helped inspire me to, to learn about economics. I'm forever grateful. And that's an amazing feeling. How many careers do you get where you get that? Do, do, does, do you ever contact your tax auditor and say, listen, thanks for doing my tax eight years ago. I, I saved a lot of money. I'm really happy for it. It's, this is one of the few professions where you actually make a difference, a tangible, real difference. And when people contact you, after I've taught them to say, thank you, you inspired me, you helped me. That's the, one of the most amazing feelings in the world. Um, my door is always open to ex-students, whether they want a reference or whether they want to say g'day, or whether they want uh, some ideas about projects, the door is always open. Awesome. Thanks for your time today, Wayne. I think that'll wrap it up. No worries. Cool. Thank you, Wayne, for all your time. No worries, guys. Okay, take care. I'll speak to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, Wayne. See you later.